Hey everyone, thanks for joining. Today I'm speaking with Charles Nagy. Charles was an associate professor of psychology at the University of Central Florida. He's a PhD in psychology and he had been put on administrative leave and now I believe you were fired for some tweets. So if you want to talk about that a little bit then if we can get on to you know, academia in general afterwards. Okay, thank you for having me on your program. So to give your audience a little bit of the background of my situation at the risk of last June I was on Twitter and I made some comments on Twitter that some perceived as anywhere from insensitive all the way over to racist of course in my mind they're not racist at all <clears throat> they were in lot the comments were in line and I'll, I'll be happy to share those comments with the audience uh, the comments were in line with what I normally say in my cross-cultural psychology class, which I've been teaching for over 20 years. Um, so let me, if, if you can endure this. No, go ahead, please. Let me share a little bit about my cross-cultural psychology class so that you, your audience has some understanding of where I'm coming from. So I teach a class, and the way I teach it, cross-cultural psychology, it is not a social justice class. We're not there to romanticize or glorify any cultural group. And of course, we're not there to denigrate any cultural group as well. It's a pretty data-driven course. Uh, most of the things I say about the groups that I cover are is neutral. I do reserve the last segment of my coverage of each cultural group to spend time focusing on challenges or problems that disproportionately affect the group that we're talking about. The groups I cover in the class are Hispanics, Latinos, and then whites and Europeans, Africans and African-Americans, Native Americans, and then Arabs slash Muslims. <clears throat> so I can cover all those groups and say things that are not necessarily flattering about whites, Hispanics, Native Americans. And there's not much upset in a class. The classes, keep in mind, are anywhere from 200 to 400 students, and they're very diverse. <clears throat> Typically, over the last 20 years, it's when I get to African Americans and when I start covering some things that disproportionately affect them. And to a lesser extent, when I get to Muslims, a similar situation. There's indiv individuals, not the entire class who's black or who's Muslim, but some individuals from those groups who typically want to protest in some way. And they've been cordial in my class and I've been cordial with them, but if, they, if they're just gonna flap their chest and complain, I quickly let them know that they need to provide some data that refute what I've covered, not just have a temper tantrum in class. And so we've managed to get through the class for, for 20 years. <clears throat> but um, what happened in June was George Floyd was, whether we think he was murdered or not, that's up to the individual, but he died within the context of a police officer. And of course, in, in the United States, a lot of cities were uh, experiencing a lot of chaos as a result. And people were all over Twitter making comments, and I made some comments. So here's one example of my Twitter comment that seemed to upset people who identify with Black Lives Matter. My Twitter comment was, <clears throat> if on average, African-Americans as a group had the same behavioral profile as Asian-Americans on average, and I put in parentheses, being the most educated, earning the most money, committing the least crime, et cetera, would we still be proclaiming that systemic racism is real? So that seems to upset a lot of people, as if how dare me ask the question if systemic racism is real in the United States in 2020. <clears throat> and another tweet that seems to have gotten people upset, <clears throat> again, these are people who based on Twitter 
descriptors seem to identify or, or affiliated with Black Lives Matter was I was, in this particular tweet, I was simply replying to someone else. I mentioned that black privilege is real. I mentioned that uh, affirmative action, set aside contracts, scholarships that are just for African-Americans does represent a form of a privilege. <clears throat> well, those are two examples that seem to be the, the, the ones that really got people's ire. So that evening, I received hundreds of tweets from people all telling me what a racist, disgusting person I am and that I'm going to be fired soon. <clears throat> and the next day, to my surprise, the president of the university, of the University of Central Florida, along with the provost, and in, just in case your audience doesn't know what a provost is, it's kind of like a vice president, and the, our chief diversity officer, <clears throat> they were out on a lawn with, based on videos, looks like maybe 20 to 30 student, UCF, University of Central Florida students, most appear to have been African-Americans based on my perception. And they were demanding from those three individuals, the president, the provost, and the chief diversity officer that I be fired immediately. <clears throat> and so this is all on video. And what we have on video, when I say we, my legal team and I, is we have these students who are getting angry at the president, provost, and chief diversity officer because it, they're not willing to say right then on the spot that they're going to fire me. And at some point, the provost with a megaphone tells the students, the way to solve this problem is to lodge racial discrimination complaints with the Office of Equity and Inclusion. So he just sent out a message to those students, the way to solve this problem. Remember, they're all gathered there because they're upset over my tweets. Demanding I'd be fired. And he's telling them the way to solve this problem is to go lodge racial discrimination allegations. And then that same day, that same day, the president posts a message on the UCF <clears throat> website so all 70,000 plus students can see in which he denounces my tweets as racist and vile and hurtful and offensive and letting the people know <clears throat> in that message that he has zero tolerance for racism and UCF is going to confront it when it rears his ugly head. And he mentions me by name and my tweets. And then he closes that message that he posted for everyone to see that if they've ever experienced any racial harassment or discrimination <clears throat> from any professor, so after he bashes me for 80% of the message, he saves the last 20% to, to pretend that it was just a generic message that if they've ever experienced any racial harassment or discrimination from any professor to contact their integrity line, and they can even do so anonymously. So people started calling in. Now, some of these people were my ex-students. Some of them were people who aren't even at UCF or around the country, but they could do it anonymously. And they were just lodging all kinds of complaints. About half the complaints had no connection to reality and were quite obscene and disgusting, saying that I said these things in class. The other half were somewhat connected to reality, but they've taken things I said, put a really ugly twist on them, <clears throat> and totally left out the context for which I... So, unbeknown to me, UCF had started an investigation into my entire 22 year history, unbeknown to me. It wasn't until six weeks later that I was notified that they had launched an investigation into me and that they wanted me to appear for an, an investigative interview. <clears throat> and they only were willing to share with me about maybe eight to 10 examples of things that they expect me to respond to. Now, they had literally over 500 allegations that they wanted me to respond to over a two-day period, going over nine hours. But they were only willing to give me 
about eight to 10 examples of what I can say. So I went into this interview. I had my private attorney, Samantha Harris, who is affiliated with FIRE, which is the Foundation for Individual Rights in Education, but she has, she works in a private She was present, but she could not speak. She was not permitted to speak. <clears throat> so here's how this interview went. So it went over two days, a total of nine hours and 15 minutes. The person who was in, is the director of the Office of Equity and Inclusion said to me, did you say in the fall of 2012, la-di-da-di-da? Now, I'm telling you and your audience, I don't know what the hell I said last week. <laughs> and you're asking me what I said in 2012 with 30,000 students. I did my best to answer the questions. And then the next question, in 2005, did you say this? And then in 2017, did you say this? It just went on and on and on like that. And like I said, half the things they questioned me on, I said, of course not. I would never say that. And then some of the things um, I tried to explain, well, I, I, I think I know what this person is complaining about. This is what I actually said, and this was a context for it. And then there were some things, I'm going to give you an example here. It's important for you, if you're willing to follow along here, to give you an idea of how deceptive and disingenuous this whole investigation was. This person from the Office of Institutional Equity, those six weeks that I was under investigation without being told, she was collecting emails that I had sent to students. She was collecting recordings that students saved and provided to her. <clears throat> so she, I'm gonna give you one example which exemplifies a lot of the nonsense that this investigation what really represented. So I'm gonna tell your audience now that I'm gay, I have a husband. I'm open about that. I'm open about that with my students. Not that I talk about my personal life, but at some point I let them know this is who I am. So anyway, she asked me one question. She said, have you ever used the word faggot in class? And my response to her was, of course not. I told her, I said, you know I'm gay and you know uh, I'm 60 years of age, I'm from Texas. That word has always been used in the most hurtful way to me. So, of course not. I never have. Now, she moved on. But what she didn't tell me, and this is the way she did the whole interview, she was deceptive as hell, was she had it in her hand right there in front in the Zoom session. She didn't share it with me. She did not share it with me. She had in her hand an email that I had sent to my cross-cultural students a year prior telling them about the situation with the Covington kids who were in Washington, D.C., there for a pro-life protest, I think. And, of course, the news covered primarily some Native American who supposedly was assaulted in some way or insulted by the kids when the video shows it was the other way around. What I'm telling my students about that situation, because at that time the situation was on the news, was that what the news did not cover was prior to the Native American situation, a, a small number of black men who called themselves the black Hebrew Israelites. There's some fringe group. They were in broad daylight in front of tourists calling those kids who weren't bothering them at all. I put in quotation mark, calling them incest babies. I put in quotation marks, faggot. I put in quotation marks, future school shooters. And I told my students, no one confronted those black individuals for their bigotry. And I said, I presume it was because they're black. <clears throat> so if Nancy Myers, that's her name, the, the director of Office of Equity and Inclusion, if she would have been an honest inter interviewer, she would have said to me, you said you never used the term, but here's the email from you in which you did. I would have said to her, excuse me, I'm not using the term. I'm pointing out someone else used it to be aggressive with those innocent kids. This is what she did with that. She used that along with some other examples to claim that I provided false information during the interview. So that was another big reason why they fired me because I provided false information during the interview. You wanna say something? No, I, I, when you say like, that's like the, uh, what's, what's his name? Don McNeil, Doug McNeil, the guy from the New York Times. 
Yeah. It's the same exact thing, right? He was talking about a young woman, you know, when she was 12 years old or something. And she said, you know, she said, nigger, I'm sorry. I mean, I, I, again, same thing here. You were talking about what someone said. I'm going to use the word. So it's like context doesn't matter. It's, you know, like your, your intent doesn't matter. Like you didn't intend to insult anyone. I mean, what if you'd been reading Dickens, let's just say, and he said, you know, put another faggot of wood on the fire. I mean, like. Well, what's, what's amazing is unless I'm living in the twilight zone, if you understand that show, does UCF, the University of Central Florida, not think that a disinterested, dispassionate judge is going to look at examples like that and not think how deceptive and disingenuous UCF w was trying to claim that they caught me, they caught me lying. Mm -hmm. And no, they kind of set me up for that. So it's just, just mind boggling for me. Yeah, no, it's like, I, no, sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you, but that, that like something like that is just, it, I mean, it's so, it's like so emblematic of like what the problems are like this morning, whatever, Dr. Seuss is being canceled. I mean, yes. <laughs> it, 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 no, I'm, you probably saw my tweet. It, if you're hurt over seeing how those characters, those critters on mm -hmm. Dr. Seuss is portrayed, you really need psychotherapy if you're hurt over that. Oh God. Oh, but all of it. I mean, um, just, I mean, I can't forget uh, there's Dr. Seuss. I'm trying to think of some of the other stuff that's, uh, Curious George is uh, it's racist because you're bringing an African monkey back to the city. Uh, same thing with Babar. I mean, oh, like, at this point, you're going looking for a problem. Like you're sure. actually like a lot of this stuff reminds me of um, there's that painting. I mean, it's it's I, I don't know where you know. I mean, obviously, I guess it's in the book of Ezekiel, but you know, he, he, but there's a painting where he pulls back the the world and he can see paradise behind it. It's kind of like that, that, like they're, they're pulling back the hidden world so they can see all the hidden racism underneath. It's just like, you guys, you're crazy. Like you're, I mean, I could find racism in the stupidest things if I wanted to, like I remember playing, we were playing poker with my friends and I was coming back from behind and one of my friends said, Oh, he's a dark horse pick. And I was like, Oh, that's racist. I was just like, you know, but I was sitting around with my friends. We're joking. We all knew, but I mean, it, it's, it's an offhand comment. It's just, come on. That did not have any intention. I yeah, don't, I, I don't, exactly. uh, no, not at all. Yeah. Sorry, I didn't mean to interrupt you. That's okay. So I was teaching over the summer while this investigation was going on. And unbeknown to me, again, UCF sent a message to my students. I was teaching online. We were teaching online because of the coronavirus. Sent a message to my students that I'm being monitored for inappropriate behavior. And if I say anything or do anything that they think is problematic to let them know. Talking about poisoning my students and, and biasing their perception. And the, only, the only way I found that out was a student sent the message to a friend of hers who was my ex-student and shared it with me. <clears throat> it was like, they're really, they really wanted to portray me as an evil monster that they never knew they had on campus for 22 years. So I continued teaching and I was told they completed that interview with me in August. And I was told in September, they're going to complete the investigative report in September. So on October 1st, not having received the investigative report, I sent a message to Nancy Myers saying, where's the report? Oh, I had some things come up in my family life, so it's postponed, but I'll get it to you this month in October. So she promised it was in September. Now she's promising in October. November 1st, I'm sending her a message saying, where's the report? Oh, it's coming in November. December 1st, okay. I'm asking, where's the report? Oh, it'll be coming in December. So... <clears throat> On December 14th, and by the way, on the, on the December 1st, December 1st message that I sent her, my attorney helped me craft the message. And in that message, it said, according to your policies, you're supposed to finish this report and let me know, let me have access to it within 90 days, unless there's some just cause. So if you have that just cause for why you have not provided this report to me, 
let me know what it is. She doesn't even respond to me. Nancy Myers. On December 14th, at 4 o'clock p.m., I get a message from her saying, as you know, the university is about to close down in an hour for winter break. So I'll get this report to you in January. <clears throat> so by now I'm thinking they don't know what to do with me because I've never, I've never racially discriminated or harassed anyone in my life, much less at UCF. And so I'm preparing for, to teach in January, the spring semester. And one week before the semester begins, I get a notice saying, you're being put on paid leave, of paid leave, administrative leave, excuse me, paid administrative leave. So you won't be teaching in the spring. And they didn't tell me what's going on. And then one week later, I get two things in the email. <clears throat> one is I finally get that investigative report from Nancy Myers. It's 244 pages long, 244 pages long. And I get a message from my dean saying that we're letting you know we're going to terminate you. And even though normally we give people six months notice with six months pay, because you represent a threat to the safety and well-being of the UCF community, we're not providing that to you. You'll be fired in seven business days. So yeah, I represent a threat to the community. There's no history of violence in my entire life again, much less at UCF. They're just wanting to humiliate me and be very aggressive with me, very aggressive. So I had a chance to respond to, the Dean sent me the, the notice that they planned to fire me in seven business days. I had a chance to respond to it and I did. And I thought for sure the responses were so on uh, point on, spot on, that maybe they would realize they're making a big mistake. I let them know that we have, we have on video the provost with a megaphone coaching students to lodge complaints against me. I, what I failed to tell your audience and you was that that June 4th protest out on the lawn with some quote unquote Black Lives Matter students and the president, the provost and the chief diversity officer, 10 days later, the president is back on the lawn with another protest from the students and they're getting mad at him again, telling him he needs to fire me right now. And he's talking to them, trying to explain to them the process and the student interrupts him to tell the group. He's saying to all of you that Negi should have been fired before he got tenure. And the president turns to her and says, that's correct. And he continues talking. So he doesn't know on, that's June 14th. He doesn't know if there's any validity to these students' allegations against me. All he knows is my tweets. And he's already saying publicly on video that we have that I should have been fired before I got tenure. So I'm letting, in my response to the dean, my chance to rebut why they're firing me, I pointed out to her that we have three things on video. One is the president saying I should have been fired before I got tenure, before he knew anything about the validity of the charges against me. The provost using the megaphone to encourage students to lodge complaints against me. And the chief diversity officer went on UCF Twitter, I think it was June 4th, letting them know that they, can, they should continue with the hashtag UCF fire him campaign to get me fired. <laughs> so the administration really made it clear that they want to be fired before they knew the result of anything. Okay, let's take the university aside for a second, but just her saying use this hashtag. Isn't that harassment on Twitter? Like, isn't that against Twitter's rules right away? Like, shouldn't that account have been suspended? Like, I mean, she's asking people to harass you. You think Twitter would be concerned about wanting to uh, go against someone who's trying to wipe out racism? And yeah, I, I, Look, I, I, get, I, I understand that... The, you know, that, that, okay. that's the hypocrisy there. That's or, right. That's right. You know, like that's right. the asymmetry in how they do this. But I mean, she's calling for you to be harassed. I mean, like I said, there's stuff at the university. There's, I don't know if you have a 
legal claim on that because that is a, a form of harassment against you. But but it's 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 like this kind of stuff that I've been seeing um, since 2014, basically. Like I was away from North America from 2002 until 2000 till December of 2000 or no, sorry, March of 2014. So when I got back in 2014, that's when I really started noticing a lot of this stuff, and it was just you know completely like hypocritical or you know it's only going in one direction you know there, there's like I, I have friends of mine who are either reform muslim women or ex-muslim women who get rape threats and like just the most horrific insults and death threats and they go they you know they'll take a screenshot of it and say oh look someone sent me this this is disgusting and they'll get their account suspended for posting a picture of their threat but the guy who made the threat is not getting anything happen to them. It's, it's, it's like, it's the same thing here. I mean, but also like what you're describing with that video, all I could think of was evergreen. All I could think of was George Bridges at evergreen, putting his hands down like in front of all those students. It's, just, it's, the, it's the exact same thing. So, um, they were supposed to fire me. Like I said, seven day business days after they told me they're going to fire me three days went by. And I had not heard from them. So I thought maybe my response caused them to question whether they want to go forward with this or not. And uh, no, it was just a three-day delay. And they fired me 10, day, 10 business days later. Um, Jesus. And they, they made me go to campus being escorted by the UCF police to remove my belongings from my office, which is very humiliating, very humiliating. <sighs> Paraded me in front of the secretaries with a escort. What um, did they make? Did they make you wear a hair sweater and a dunce cap like in the, the cult <laughs> struggle sessions? I mean, Jesus! I know it's unbelievable. Yeah. Okay, but you're saying like they had quotes from 2005 and you know 2012 and things like that. But that's like that kid in New York City who held. I think it was New York City. He kept a video of a girl. When she was mm. fourteen, singing, mm -hmm. singing some rap song, and then mm -hmm. getting her, getting her admission revoked at a university. Mm -hmm. I mean, like, okay, I had, I went to university. I didn't like all my professors. I always thought some of them were assholes, but I didn't think to keep a record of something they said for yeah. twenty years or fifteen years. Like, I know, like, you know, you were living rent free in your head for how long? For crazy, <laughs> I know, I know, it's unbelievable. The whole thing, that, it's almost like it's not real, but it, it is. Real. But it seems like it's not real. It's so bizarre. Um, but okay, the students that do this, I mean, I don't know if you have access or if professors have access to like other courses students are taking. So no. I was just wondering like if, you know, okay, speaking to other people who are in academia, I mean, and looking at this stuff since I came back, I know it's not all the students. I know right. it's not all the faculty. It's, <laughs> it's, it's more heavy in the administration that I found than in faculty or anything like that. But, you know, if a student's taking um, some critical race course or they're taking, you know, gender studies or some intersectional course or something like that, and they're getting those ideas and then they come take your course. I mean, again, like th they're being trained to see the world in a certain way. That's right. So, okay, again, when I was in university, you know, first year you go there, you ask people, uh, or, you know, you have friends, okay, which are good teachers, which are bad teachers. Like, you know, the professors that, that people want to take, okay, if you want to blow off class, take this one. Cause it's a good blow off, whatever. Every, every kid knows that. Right. But are they like, I'm just wondering if some of these courses are like, okay, you know what? We don't like this guy because we've heard he says X or she says X take that course and file complaints. Like, I wonder if, I don't know. Like, I mean, I'm, I'm getting a little conspiratorial and putting on my little tinfoil hat, but it, it's like, why would you take a course? Like, if that's your whole goal, like, why would you take a course? Well, let me let you know that you, you probably already know this. At the end of every semester, the students get to evaluate us, and it's anonymous. Mm -hmm. So, all these evaluations, and none of these none of these allegations appear. None of these allegations appear on my anonymous end of the semester mm -hmm. student evaluations which I think is why it took UCF so long to make a move on me because they had to figure out how are they going to explain that? I can get to their explanation in a moment, but I want to go back to your, your question. There are lots of students who like me, 
lots. And I've gotten three major, major teaching awards. Each award is based on the previous four years. And they were reviewed by a, a committee of about 15 to 20 peers over a four-year period. We can only apply for that award once every five years. And if we get it, we get a permanent $5,000 raise to our annual salary. It's a big award. I've gotten three of those. And I've gotten evaluated as outstanding in teaching by my chair for 17 out of 22 years. So this is all a problem for UCF. But to answer your question, and then I'll come back to how UCF tried to explain that away. I'm known on campus for being a real straightforward, data-driven professor, and that attracts a lot of students. So most of my evaluations are positive. I do get five to 10% of students who say they hate me, they hate me, they hate me on my student evaluations. They rarely ever say anything specific about why they hate me other than, you know, he's opinionated, he shuts you down, whatever. Um, so most students, I think, know what they're getting into in my course. Now, so UCF, in my opinion, knew they had a dilemma. How are they going to explain that all these allegations that came forth starting on June 4th, after the president invited those complaints, don't show up on any of my evaluations. And it, someone got creative and, and said, oh, it's because he tells the students over and over that he's untouchable. There's no point in complaining about him, that he has tenure, that he has free speech. Now, let me just share with you where they get that idea from. Well, I've had a previous, some previous occasions in the past where a group of students these were Christians at the time who didn't like my critiquing of religion. I also covered religion in that class, cross-cultural psychology. And they thought they could go complain about me. And at the time, the dean and even the provost fully supported what I do in class. They were happy to have, they had someone, a professor who's willing to challenge students in the way they see things and let students form their own opinions in the end. So, but this was at a time like 10 years ago when some students were thinking they can go and complain and cause problems for me. And yet the university made it clear they were going to protect me. So from that time onward, at the first day of class, the first day of class, every semester and every class of mine, I talked to them about the importance of academic freedom, free speech, and what tenure means. It gives them the freedom, not tenure, but free speech and academic freedom gives them the freedom to say whatever they want to in class gives me the freedom to say what I want to. And I explained to them, that doesn't mean we can call each other names. That's not protected. We can't insult each other. I won't insult you and I won't tolerate you insulting me. But you can ask anything, you can challenge anything, and I can too. This is a university. So I say that in the day one of every single class, every semester, the last 10 years, UCF has taken those recordings and strung them together so that they can try to present this illusion that I say it over and over and repeatedly that I have tenure and you can't do anything to me, which is nonsense. There's no, I'm gonna to have to point out to these idiots, I have to point out to them when the, when the occasion arises that you won't hear me saying anywhere in those recordings that you strung together that I can even engage in racial harassment or racial discrimination and I'm, I'm free to do that. They won't find that anywhere because I didn't say that. I said tenure, academic freedom, my tenure and, and freedom of speech allows me to say all the critical things that I'll be saying in this class about religion and the specific ethnic groups. So anyway, UCF thinks they explain why these 300 egregious allegations against me that came in after the UCF president invited them don't show up anywhere in my years of student evaluations. And they think they're going to get away with that. And I think they're not going to, but we'll have to find out. Okay. But so there's just slight devil's advocate here for a second. If they're saying, okay, from 2010 to 2020, you were saying this, right? I'm assuming that's when you got tenure. Now, if prior to you getting tenure, you were saying the same exact kind of things, except leaving out a little bit about tenure. Like we have academic freedom, there's free speech. We should be able to, like, doesn't that kind of, like if you'd been giving the same kind of talk previously, doesn't that kind of negate that whole thing? Like, like 
before he had tenure, I mean, it's a lot easier to fire a professor who doesn't have tenure than it is to fire one who does, right? I mean, but. Let me set you straight, if I may. I got tenure in 2002. And didn't get this little spiel until around 2010, after I had some flare-ups with some Christians who wanted to cause problems for me. Okay, so. Okay, I get that. Then I was just curious about that because, like, I'm just saying, you know, like, if you, you know, first of all, I, I think it's ridiculous that you're in a university, and I mean, I, I see this all the time now, and I'm like, why do students going into university not realize that they're there to be challenged? Like, they're not there to be coddled. Like, I still keep thinking back to um, that young girl that was speaking, uh, screaming at Nicholas Christakis, like, you know, you're not here to build an intellectual space for us. You're here to build a home. Yeah. It's like, no, that's that's Yale University. Your parents are shelling out a lot of good money or you've got a lot of expensive student loans to go there. And it is all about your intellectual progress. It's not about building a home. You don't, <laughs> you know, you're not going to live at Yale. Like, it's, you know, like, it's, once you graduate, they kick you out. <laughs> no, but obey. The, the problem is, and this has been building up the last 10 years and it's reached a critical point now. Yeah. Students, especially those who belong to minority groups, but even their white allies who want to pretend that they're such good, morally wonderful people who are going to save all the minorities, they've gotten the message that you cannot be offended. If you hear anything someone says, you know, if I oppose affirmative action, there are people who love affirmative action and think it's a right. They're entitled to it. They find what I just said offensive. They know, they've learned, they can go lodge a complaint of racial harassment. They felt intimidated, okay? And we have these offices now called Office of Diversity or Equity or Inclusion who are very eager to take such complaints and explore them to the max. Yeah, but... I mean, like, again, this is, you know, I saw some of this stuff in the late eighties, early nineties. Like that's when I went to school with like the PC craze. Uh -huh. I remember there, I remember there was a blood drive going on at my university. It was like, it was my freshman year and this was 89, I think. And they were talking about because of AIDS and the, the, there, there'd been a uh, blood scandal in Canada with the Canadian blood services. So they were changing the questionnaire. And some guy got up and in this meeting and started comparing it to eugenics. It's like, no, it's not eugenics. Like they changed. Okay. The questionnaire, like it said, uh, cause I think they still use something similar. Like, do you use intravenous drugs? Do you pay for sex? Do you have, you know, non-protected sex? Do you have you know, sex with multiple partners? Do you engage in, uh, I mean, I think the only thing you can maybe imply or infer that it's home, you know, like, uh, like homophobic is like they said, do you engage, you know, in anal sex? Well, here in the United States, you're in Canada, right? Yeah. Okay. So here in the United States, they have the longest time prohibited any man who reports that he's had sex with another man from donating blood. Why is that? Because about 25% of men who have sex with men are HIV positive, about 25%. Mm. And that's been pretty consistent. And the general population is less than 1%. It's less than 1%. But for men who have sex with men, it doesn't matter whether they identify as gay or bisexual, mm -hmm. about 25% of them are HIV infected. So that was the rationale to deny accepting blood from any man who reports that he's had sex with men. And of course, there are gay activists who think that's discriminatory. But no, it's what I call rational discrimination. It's rational discrimination. If your group, which is my group, in, uh, on average, ten, tends to engage in irresponsible behavior, knowing that HIV is out there, and yet you still engage in unprotected sex. Don't be surprised that society at large wants to protect themselves from possibly becoming infected through a blood supply. Yeah, I, you know, like I said, we can get into the whole. I mean, like it's it's a complicated conversation. You should, you should be able to have it. Like you shouldn't be, if someone takes that position, you shouldn't just jump down their throat. I mean, it depends obviously how they say it, if they're being derogatory and it, Oh, yo, you can't let, you know, these, whatever, uh -huh. you know, give blood. Okay. No, if you actually are 
being honest about it, you're, you're, you're speaking about it. Like I said, in Canada, that's, you know, if, if it's a gay couple, they're not going to say, no, you can't give blood. It's like I said, the questions are very specific. Like, do you use intravenous drugs? Do you share needles? Are you paying for sex? Like those are very high risk, you know, like all those things are very high risk things that, um, so you can get HIV. But if it's a, if it's a married gay couple, I don't think they'd, you know, I, I, again, like I, I, I would not assume that. Yeah. I would but not assume that. Yeah. Maybe. So, I mean, it's, Okay, like I'll give you a, a personal thing. Like, so I worked in war zones, and I had a, at one point I had a passport with stamps from uh, working in Bosnia, working in Kosovo, working in Afghanistan, visiting all over Southeast Asia, visiting parts of the Middle East. You know, like highly suspicious passport. And plus, uh, a, it had run out because they had stapled two together. One of the first one had run out, so I had to send it to. I was working in Kabul at the time, so I had to send it to Islamabad, Pakistan and get a passport done there from the Canadian embassy. But the passports outside of Canada are not electronically scannable because of the paper or something. I don't know, some weird thing. So yeah, I would get extra scrutiny when I came back home where I went visited anywhere. I would get a lot of extra scrutiny because they'd look at, mm -hmm. yeah, fine. I've got an Arab name. I'm brown. <laughs> like, you know, like, you know, you see all these things in a passport. And then whenever that happens, I would take out my NATO ID. I would show it to them. And, they'd, and it's like, fine, thank you. Go, go through. But I'm not going to freak out about that extra scrutiny and just start saying that, you know, it's racism because they have a it was rational. Yeah, it was rational. <laughs> yeah. I mean, like if I was a customs guy and I saw someone, you know, like with my name who looked like me with all those stamps in their passport, mm -hmm. I'd question it because I mean, mm -hmm. I was in a lot of hotspots. <laughs> yeah. You know, I, I, again, I, I've been looking at a lot of this stuff and is it down to like, edge? I mean, it's got to be down to education. Like you're not, you're not training kids to think you're training them. Like you're, you're just training them what to think, not how to think like they're. And to be activists. Yeah. I mean, I, I okay. I'm going to, I'm going to like, you know, really shit on academia for a second here. Cause I think it, it's not to like point fingers or anything like that, but this stuff was coming through starting in the late eighties, early nineties, like the intersectionality and all that stuff. Mm -hmm. Now, I don't think it should be stopped from being like teach it. You want to teach it at universities? There's you know, there were all kinds of courses that I, I saw that I was like, these are kind of a waste of time. Like I wouldn't take them. But at one point or other, the university should do like like I think I tweeted out today, like they should do some kind of audit on that. Like, you know, what methodology are you following? What you know, were academics just scared or like obviously you don't want English department coming into physics and saying that's not how you do physics and vice versa. Mm -hmm. But if the English department is just randomly handing out PhDs because the person who uses the most vowels in the paper or something like that, like, you know, like, okay, should you, shouldn't the, like the Dean of the department or the, the president or someone question that? I mean, especially after the, like the, the grievance study affairs came out with, you know, like James Lindsay and Helen Pluckrose at that point, you know, when they got, Mein Kampf published in a feminist journal. And when they got that dog park paper published in a journal, wouldn't someone in a university just turn around and say, what's going on? Like, why are these departments? But now I just see, you know, okay, someone I respect, Sean Carroll. Like, I think what he does in physics is great. But then I saw him parroting some of this stuff. Oh, we need to get more, you know, I'm all for getting more people into physics or whatever, but you know, oh, it's, it's, it's racist and this and that. It's like, no, it's, got to be able to do math yeah but and then now oh yeah you got to be able to do math now you have bill gates funding culturally sensitive math like oh my it's god all, it's like the, like i say we're living in a twilight zone it seems yeah but okay that's what racists said i mean if you go you know like people go like a lot of these guys like the the critical racers or whatever will go back to history and say aha they stopped black people from getting into you know science and all this this and that blah 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 that held back black people's earning potential, which all of that's true. Like I'm not denying any of that, but now you're doing the same thing, but you're doing it. You know, it's, 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 it's Rauch's um, humanitarian threat to liberal science. Like you're doing it in the name of social justice. You're doing it in the name of anti-racism that, Oh, well, you know, we won't, you have to teach math differently. Like, you know, showing your work is, is racist. I'm like, 
showing my work in math saved saved my ass a lot of times. Like I got part marks for showing my work. Mm-hmm. <laughs> you raised the question, and we kind of drifted from it. The question was, isn't anyone watching what's happening? Yeah, exactly. Well, my I have two two explanations for that. Why that being why is this taking place and no one seems to do anything about it? One is there's always the assumption that people in charge of each department knows what they're doing. That's an assumption. Okay. So you, you mentioned English people don't tell the physics people what to be doing and physics don't tell the English folks because there's the assumption that the people in those departments are making good faith efforts to generate knowledge in their respective discipline. That's just a, an assumption that everyone seems to have. That's one reason why no one gets involved really in what's going on in these departments, even deans. Deans come from one discipline, whatever their PhD is in, but they're, they're over a variety of departments and they, they kind of have a hands-off approach unless something is really problematic. So they assume the chairs and the faculty are kind of keeping an eye on each other, so to speak. The other thing is, as you probably already know, starting in the 60s, when different minority groups were asserting themselves, at least in the United States, which is fine, there's rational assertion and then there's irrational assertion, of course. Well, people started, people from those groups started demanding to have their own departments, their own programs you know, African or black studies program or department, Hispanic department or program, women's studies, gay, queer program, et cetera. And if it's kind of the same thing here, no one wants to, no one wanted to confront them because you were going to be labeled as a racist or a sexist or a homophobe. And no one likes to be defending against that. So deans and administrators started going along because they wanted to show everyone that they're on board with supporting minority causes, just like today, just like today. And uh, those departments have been around for since the 60s, the late 60s. And there's no chance of them going away unless something drastic happens to university budgets or something. But all of us know on campus, even though most people would not acknowledge this, of course I will, is there's not much real scholarship going on in those departments. You know, in the women's studies program, they're bashing men the whole time. They're just bashing men, blaming men for all their problems in the world. And the African and African-American studies program, they're bashing whites and so on and so forth. So no one wants to get involved. It's like those, it's like those black Hebrew Israelites in Washington, DC. No one's gonna confront them on their bigotry and stupidity because no one wants to be pounced upon and called a racist and or homophobe or a sexist. So the BS continues, the BS continues. And today, this is like 70 years, 50, I'm sorry, 50 years later, 50 years later, since the six, late 60s, uh, these people have been hiring like-minded people for the last several decades. Every time a professor retires, you have to now declare your allegiance to diversity to get hired at almost every American university. When I say declare it, uh, even in psychology, when I've been on the market in past recent years, in the interview or in the application, you have to write an essay about how you plan to promote diversity and what your, your philosophy is about equity and inclusion, et cetera. So, and you know, California, University of California system has a They've been, I don't know if it's already in place or not, but they're going to have a formal procedure where before a professor's application for a job ever gets to the department, there'll be some committee looking it over and scoring it on diversity and inclusion, how they, how they respond to the, an essay about that. And only those applicants whose application, the essay meets the standards of commitment to diversity, now those will go forward to the department to actually look at the applicants to decide who they want to invite for a job interview. So it's all a mess. It's all a mess. It's all activism and politics. Universities do not exist to, to be, to create activists. I'm sorry. They have, they are subjur- subverting, subverting the purpose of university. 
We're here to generate knowledge to the best that we can, as objectively as we can, and to share it with others. But note, the reason I'm in the crap that I'm in is because we just hired this new president who his main mission is to implement diversity, equity, and inclusion in every aspect of the university. That's his main mission. He never, he never mentions raising academic standards or anything. He wants to implement his diversity, equity, inclusion. And he knows I've been outspoken about that. And he went after me with a vengeance. He didn't care about freedom of speech, constitution or anything. Yeah. Tenure. He thinks he did something good. We'll find out soon whether he gets away with it or not. But okay. The, like all these things I'm seeing, like, and I, like I said, I'd be reading up on some of this and I look at some of the, uh, look at some of the curriculums in K through 12. Cause I mean, it's, it's there now. And it's, you know, uh, like the, the Seattle had what ethnic math curriculum back in 2018. And okay, I was born in India. You know, I work, I work in it. I set up communication systems. I'm sorry. Like we use Arabic numerals, you know, and they're called Arabic numerals because the Arabs stole them from India, but they're Indian numerals. The concept of zero, the way we use it comes from India. I, I know the Mayans came up with zero as well, but they were on their own. So that didn't really affect us, but you know, but it's like, it's a historical. And I mean, again, it's the same thing racists used to say. They used to say, these people can't do this stuff. Now that's what these so-called social justice warriors are doing. They're, they're, they're telling me that I'm something lesser. And they're, I mean, you know, oh, white people are holding you down. I'm like, no one's ever held me down. Honestly, the, the thing about affirmative action, I don't want a job because I'm brown. I want a job because I'm qualified. I want to get a promotion because I'm qualified. You know, and I don't want to give that ammunition to to actual racists because an, an actual racist, like, like let's say I get a job and I screw up at it. Oh, I see that he only got hired because he was diversity. I have, these brown folk can't do anything. Like, I don't want to give people ammo. And I, like, again, I, they're like infantilizing. Glad, they're infantilizing. Oh yeah, they are. But I mean, I'm, I'm glad people like John McWhorter. I'm not saying mm -hmm. finally, because I know McWhorter and Glenn Lowry have been talking about this for, mm -hmm. for about 10, 15 years now, but mm -hmm. I'm glad more and more people are finally speaking up because it is like, stop treating me like a child. Stop mm -hmm. treating me with, with kid gloves. It's, you know, it's like, no, I, if I screw up, I want to know I screwed up. I don't want to. Oh, well, you know, like, and that's another part of it. Oh, well, you know, what's, it's not part of your culture. Like the, the, what they're doing in New York now, if kids come in late or hand in assignments late, don't, don't, you know, penalize them because that's just culturally sensitive. Again, you're saying black and brown folk are lazy and can't tell time. Like, come on. You know, I, I, I know. Just, it's unbelievable. It's unbelievable. But you've heard of Shelby Steele, right? Right. Yeah. yeah. So he has some books out in which he kind of gets into the psychoanalysis of white liberals and he, he makes the argument that it's all about them. It's all about them. Yeah. The, the, the reason they coddle, the reason they coddle and infantilize black and brown people is because they want to still feel superior. It makes them feel morally superior. That they're the savior, the white savior that's gonna save all these and protect to, and protect blacks and browns from uh, such, living in such a harmful society. Uh, what I say about these people is they're, they're friends of victimhood, not victims. They need to perpetuate the victim. Like I lived for four and a half years in an Inuit community in Northern Canada. And I mean, I, I saw the way that, you know, people fresh out of college, cause it was a place to go. If you were either fresh out of college or you're ending your career, because it's completely remote. You have to fly up there. There are no roads. I went up there cause I'd been working overseas and I had a friend up there. He said, Oh, it's a decent job. I'm like, ah, I'll try it out. Like I was in the middle of my career. I didn't that. You know, I just for me it was just another adventure, but these young college kids come out, and everything is about how the the Inuit are victims. And I mean, I can go through a litany of horrible things that the Canadian government did. I mean, just just horrible. But you can't live in a barren in like you know in the Canadian Arctic. You can't live there if you're victims and not strong, resilient people. These people are incredibly resilient, but they've been reduced to the like everything's done for them. If they go to the drugstore and they want to go get their prescriptions, like I go get my prescriptions. They give me a bottle of pills. There's a label on it saying, you know, take uh, one pill two times a day. 
if an Inuit person goes up, they give them like, um, like I've seen it done for seniors who are you know, losing their memory and things like that. It's just a sheet, one, one sheet per week. And it's got all the pills doled out. Like you take this in the morning, you take this in the afternoon, you take this in the evening, like, and it's, you know, got the days of the week and it's like each sheet's like a month or a week or something like that. I'm like, you're like, that's just one little example. You're just treating them like little kids. Like, th- this, this whole thing with you're making victims, you're, you're telling people they're victims all the time. You're not doing them any good. Like, again, I mean, I, I don't know why someone like you're in psychology or someone in the psychology department should just say, wait a minute, this is not helping. Like, you know, to me, it seems like I, I again, I'm not a psychologist. I just reading a little bit of some of this stuff, but like CBT, you know, this is like the absolute opposite of that. CBT shows you how to deal with your issues. Empower you know, yourself. Yeah. This stuff is just like wrapping you up in bubble wrap and just saying, don't face anything. Like I, mm-hmm. But Again, it goes like, back to Shelby. It goes back to Shelby Steele's point. It's all about them. Yeah. Feel superior, morally virtuous, by coddling and infantilizing black and brown people. Yeah, and it's, I mean, frankly, it's insulting and it's racist. Like I, yep, you know, it is. Okay, racism directed towards me. I, uh, I remember in I was about fourteen or fifteen. I was taking the bus in Montreal, and the seat back in front of me, someone had written "Black Power." No, sorry, "White Power." Black caca. Now, the only word they spelled correctly was caca. And so I just started laughing. I'm like, come on, it's just, you know, like I'm better than that person. So whenever I had, you know, racial slurs directed towards me, I just thought back to that seat back, just laughed in my head and whatever. I can just let this go. This guy's, this person's an idiot. But it was the well-meaning liberals, you know, quote unquote liberals, because these people aren't really liberal. But then in the late 80s, like in the mid to late 80s, when the political correctness started coming out, and that condescending way they spoke to me. Like, I'm like, what do I do with that? Because A, some of these people probably mean well, they just don't know what they're talking about. So they're just being, they're being ignorant. <laughs> but I mean, like, like that stuff is, it, it, that bugs me more. Like, you know, like, like that kind of condescending racism bugs me more than a Richard Spencer calling me a packy. You know, Richard Spencer calling me a packy. I expect that from Richard Spencer. Mm. But one of these nice, well-meaning people who, you know, don't you want to be anti-racist? It's like, you're not being anti-racist. You're, I mean, it's the same stereotypes. And I still don't get how people can defend this. I have no clue. Well, you, you know, I wrote a book called White Shaming, right? Yeah. Sorry, I should have mentioned that. Yeah, I knew about that. I, That's okay. Yeah. Uh, if you get a chance, you might want to read it. Yeah. <laughs> I, I try to explain some of these things. Yeah. I Okay. I took, I, I had 18 months on medical, well, a little bit more than 18 months, but I was on medical leave and I spent 18 months because I was trying to figure out why I was being called a white supremacist for speaking out against Islam. Like, I just didn't get it. I was like, at first I thought people didn't understand the things in Islam, but then it just, so I just started looking into it, took, took a couple of wrong turns here and there. And then around 2017, started hearing about critical race theory and stuff. Like, you know, I'd been out of academia since the early 90s. I doesn't I, I don't know this stuff and i started hearing it so i started reading it and then I, I around the end of 2018 i took about 18 months and i read nothing but like i just read i started with Derek bell and i read i read bell i read crenshaw i read delgado i read spivak i read uh oh i i even read like i mean i know angela davis is in critical race theory and stuff like that but i read davis i read audrey lord uh shannon sullivan Patricia Hills. I mean, like I could go through the whole litany of everything I read. You're on your I, way to heaven. Oh, I just wanted to understand it. And so, like, I, I think the first thing I read after that was Thomas Chatterton Williams' book, and I was like, oh my god, this is so nice to read something that's not insane. But yeah, it's just so. Yeah, I, I kind of put off reading anything about race for the moment just because I read so much of that stuff. Like, I know you're like, um, like I actually, that's a bit of a lie because I just read. Um, uh, Jonathan David Church's book, uh, like the the problems of fragility, like he did a he did a book about uh, white fragility and why it's the wrong way to discuss anti racism. Mm. It just came out recently, um, mm. so I read that uh, more because it was a critique of uh, uh, white fragility. But yeah, like again, like I see a lot of the okay, I see similarities between Islam and this as well. Like 
when you criticize Islam, I don't know if you saw it in your class. Oh, you have to read the Quran. You have to read the Hadith. Oh, or you didn't understand it. Go speak to, go read it from this person or read these takfirs, uh, tasfirs. Um, it's the same thing with this stuff. Oh, you haven't read it. Oh, you don't understand it. Oh, I'm like, okay, I'm a relatively intelligent person. You know, Judith Butler is hard as all hell because she just doesn't know how to write. But I can, you know, I can read this stuff. I can slog through it. I can understand it. You know, it doesn't take much. Like, you know, Kendi's not a a great writer, and it's not difficult to read. Like, it's just. But I don't know. Like, I I don't know if more people should read it or not because I, I get at some point or other I'm like, okay, if more, enough people read it, will they convert to this new religion or will they actually just realize how crazy it is? Um, look, I don't want to keep you too long. I'd love to talk for a little bit longer, but if you got uh, any last words about uh, academia or what's going on or what's going on with you, uh, please go ahead. I'd like to update your audience on where I'm at in the process here, and it won't mm -hmm. take more than five minutes. Oh, go ahead. Take your time. So I have a union-appointed attorney. So we have a union in Florida who's going to grieve my firing, which means challenge it, and that will take nine to 12 months. It's a long, drawn-out process. So I'll see whether I get my job back or not. And regardless of whether I get my job back or not, I plan to afterwards sue the university with my private attorney. Okay. I mean, I honestly, if I was in your shoes, I would too, because it's it's absolutely ridiculous. It, it is. Okay, I got to ask this. Are they doing this? I mean, there was, you know, there, there was yourself, uh, Bo Weingard, uh, Colin, Colin Wright. I mean, obviously, Brett Weinstein, Heather Hying, you know, the Christakis's, and you can go down the list. And, and okay, and there's also on, there was that year, uh, there was a professor last year who made some stupid comment about, oh, Iran wants, is threatening to blow up their historical artifacts if we did ours in the States. I mean, okay, like, the, are they doing it because they want docile people in tenure? Like, do they want people who, because I mean, the whole point of university or whole point of academia is to come up with challenging thoughts, but do they just want docile people to come in who'll carry, like who'll toe the line? Is it? Like, well, as I've said, universities, especially in the humanities and the social sciences, mm -hmm. become act, uh, places of activism more than generating knowledge based on empirical research. So, and then you have these ultra-liberal administrators who facilitate all this. And what they all have in common is they want to show how virtuous they are and how they're going to save minorities, blacks and browns. Not Asians, not Asians, uh, but blacks and browns. Well, with brown, it depends, you know, like on the UPS thing, what brown can do for you because South Asians are considered white as well now. I mean, there was, there was actually a conference or, well, an online conference last summer in Toronto saying brown complicity and white fragility in white supremacy. So brown people are complicit. One of the ways we're complicit is we take jobs that, uh, so white people can say, oh, look, we're hiring brown people, so we're not racist, but those jobs should go to black people. But now because brown people take them, well, we're being complicit in white supremacy. Well, Canada, <laughs> slightly different from the United States in some ways. Here in the United States, we're starting to distinguish between white Hispanics versus brown Hispanics. And yeah. the white Hispanics are on the chopping block. Oh, oh yeah. I mean, it's, it's, I kid, it's, okay, last little thing, but, okay, I, there is a problem with white, okay, white supremacy is becoming a problem. And I don't mean like this made up white supremacy thing. Like they're, you know, like I think white supremacist groups are growing. Like you can take a look at what happened in Charlottesville and go all the way down. Um, but when you're getting a majority white country and you're starting to teach people to focus on racial identity, and then you're putting that through K through 12. Always, and people are scratching their heads wondering why it's going up. I mean, I, I don't know if you know about the, the Fieldston Academy in New York City. Uh, okay, so in 2015, they sent out letters to all the parents and they said, please tell us the, what racial identity or what racial affinity group your child belongs to. And this... They sent out to mixed race parents and everything as well. They broke up the kids and this, this is a K through eight Academy. So they were even doing this for kindergarten kids, 45 minutes a week. I think they did it for eight weeks or something like that. They would break the kids up into affinity groups 
and all the races would talk about how they were oppressed and the white kids and all the achievements of their race, but the white kids would talk about how they were oppressors and how they've held everyone else down. Within a matter of few weeks, those white kindergarten kids started spouting off white supremacist garbage. And it's like, gee, you wonder why. I mean, I honestly, I don't understand. Like, again, academia is supposed to be filled with smart people and they're scratching their heads going, well, why is white supremacy rising? It's like, <laughs> maybe cut off on the identity politics. I don't know. Uh, sorry, I, I didn't mean to ramble like that. That's okay. Yeah, no, it's, it's crazy. Anyways, look, thanks, thanks a lot for coming on. If you want to let people know where they can get a hold of you or where they can follow you, go ahead and I'll put that in the links. I'm on Twitter. My name's Charles Negi. Mm-hmm. My book is White Shaming. And um, my email address is charlesnegi at gmail.com. All right, great. Well, thanks a lot for coming on. My pleasure. Thank you for having me. Thanks, everyone, for listening.